Verizon, AT&T, and others just paid $88 billion with a B dollars to the federal government so they can bring you even more 5Gs. This seemed like it was kind of a big deal, so we brought in a friend to talk about it. It's the Benefit of a Doubt podcast. Welcome to the Benefit of a Dowd podcast. I'm your host, Adam Dowd, and this week we're taking a second look at 5G and wait, 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 come back. It's not like that. I know we just aired an episode with Miriam Jouar about 5G, but come on, man. Miriam is an absolute treat to talk to, and our guest today, Sasha Segan of PC Mag, is just as much fun to chat with. But 5G is a thing, and this is a fascinating conversation in which I learned a lot so I wanted to share. And share I shall, because this is the podcast and this is how I do. Also, we're taking a look at one of my favorite Christmas presents that is also helping me to learn quite a bit. But this learning goes back to the 80s. The GoCube is a Bluetooth-connected speed cube that is teaching me how to solve a Rubik's Cube very slowly, but very surely. And we'll get to that. But first, as always, we need to get to the news of the week. Petaluma, California, or as the former governor would say, Petaluma, California, became the first city in the country to ban new gas stations. There are currently 16 gas stations within the small town of 61,000 people, covering just 15 square miles. A statement by the city council said that currently every single resident has multiple gas stations within a five-minute drive, and... Yeah, even 16 stations over 15 square miles seems like they should have passed this resolution like five gas stations ago. But whatever, Petaluma, you do you. The ban also prevents current gas stations from adding pumps, but does not prevent them from adding hydrogen pumps or electrical charging infrastructure and... Hmm, that's starting to make a little bit more sense now. This is all part of Petaluma's plans of phasing out carbon emissions by 2030, which, yeah... That's ambitious. But the most yikes comment comes from Matt Crow, the U.S. oil and gas campaign director at Stand.Earth, who wrote, quote, In California in particular, where state climate targets are required by law, new gas stations will have a short shelf life and could be abandoned before they make enough money to pay for their own shutdown and cleanup and... Man, that's dark, but you got a point there, Matt. So if you're in the market to buy a new car and you live in California, maybe take a minute to consider an electric or hydrogen-powered car because you might have to start driving in Nevada to fill up before long. Protocol has a roundup of patents filed by technology companies which are very interesting. Of course, patents don't need products, but these are ideas that people are working on, and some of these are... Fairly fascinating, to say the least. One of them, coming from Google, plans to use AI and depth camera sensing to help you adjust your camera's angle for video conferencing. Basically, if you're on your phone, it's tiring to hold your phone up up above eye level, so if your arm starts to droop, AI will automatically adjust the angle back up so we're not all staring at your nose hairs, and a grateful nation thanks you, Google. Another fun one is an AI-generated activity aggregator. Basically, you tell Assistant that you're bored, and it will suggest activities for you to do based on where you are or what you like or what your friends like to do. Personally, I'd like to try that out and see Google say, oh, you live in Streamwood, Illinois? I don't know. Watch porn? 
Yeah, the struggle is real here in Streamwood, Illinois. So those new M1 MacBooks and Mac Minis came out last year, and they are super fast and awesome and everything. Well, some studies suggest that the M1 MacBooks are chewing through their SSDs amazingly fast. The problem with SSDs is basically they can only be written to so many times before they become dead. And M1 chips are doing this thing called swapping, which is what a computer does when it runs out of memory, and the system allocates certain files to a portion of your hard drive that can be loaded slower than what RAM can normally do. That's a very simplistic description of what's going on. It's fairly complicated. But the problem is that the M1 Macs seem to be doing this a lot more than more traditional PCs. And if you were wondering how M1 Macs were so fast, this might be a part of the answer. They do it by eating themselves. Anyway, a Mac forum user claims that you should just go ahead and use your computer like normal and evaluate your disk use as your warranty approaches expiration. And that's not an awesome answer. Like, that's the solution? A warranty replacement? I live in the cloud, and I can basically pick up any PC and get to work pretty much right away, but that doesn't mean I want to replace my hard drive every 365 days. I'd rather have... Now follow me here, this is a little crazy. A hard drive that doesn't need to be replaced every 365 days. I know, crazy thought. But it's also a good illustration of why you don't buy first-generation hardware. Microsoft launched a new collaboration tool called Mesh, which uses the cloud because, you know, Microsoft, but it also uses Microsoft HoloLens and other VR headsets, including Oculus headsets, to get people together in virtual environments and work together as avatars. So basically, imagine two people working on some kind of design or engineering project, but one is in New York and the other one is in LA because they both hate low rent. They both toss on their headsets and in front of them appears a virtual work environment and they work with the model or whatever they're working on with it in there. Now, other collaborators can also appear to work on the same project as avatars around you. It's really kind of neat. It's like these hologram interfaces that we see in Marvel movies. And seriously, how long is it going to be before a company figures out how to use AI to do a quick body scan and just put that image in there instead of a cartoony avatar? This is really cool tech, and I'm going to be keeping an eye on it. Maybe someday we can all have virtual meetups for patrons. Now, that would be worth two bucks a month. And by the way, patreon.com slash benefit of the doubt. DJI debuted its new racing drone called the FPV, which is not confusing at all since all racing drones are also called FPV drones, but anyway. The drone starts at just under $1,300, but man, this thing has some chutzpah. Let's start with the basics. This is a racing drone, which means it's lightweight and fast. The thing tops off at 97 miles per hour, which is still three miles an hour slower than my highest ever speeding ticket. Thank you very much, state of Wisconsin. The drone has three flying modes. Normal and Sport echo the same named modes on other DJI drones. Basically, Normal is the easy-to-fly mode, and Sport is is when you can zip around and the drone still does most of the work and by the way i've flown in both normal and sport mode quite a bit and they're both fun and pretty easy to do manual is where things get a little crazy you can fly super fast you can do loops and all that other fun stuff and in that mode you are the flyer and the drone is really just along for the ride now, part of the cost for this drone includes the remote and the goggles, which provide real-time connection to the drone. They're all bundled together, which drives up the cost not a little bit. Now, racing drones are not for the faint of heart, and this would be rough to get started on. 
just because of the cost. It's one thing to fly a drone when you can see it. It's another thing to fly when you're seeing it from its point of view only. There are a lot of much cheaper racing drones that you can crash while you get the hang of it before dropping a grand and a third on this one. It used to be that podcasting was Apple's world and we were all just living in it. When you wanted to share your podcast, you basically always sent an iTunes link. But now the guard seems to be changing. According to analysis by eMarketer, Spotify will surpass Apple Podcasts for most monthly listeners of podcasts for the first time ever, and it's only going up from there. That's pretty huge, and it's a sign that Spotify's big bet on podcasts might finally be paying off. As for this show, Pocket Cast is still the overwhelming favorite, followed by Google Podcasts, which I've tried to switch to a few times, but I still keep going back to Pocket Cast for some reason that I honestly can't figure out. And by the way, since I'm digging into statistics, I'd like to give a big shout out to my listeners in South America with Argentina really bringing home the bacon for me. Way to go, Argentina. Across the pond, Ghana and Nigeria, holla at you, folks. Tell your friends. I'm equally disappointed by the fact that I have one listener in China and by the fact that I'm not completely banned in China. And I would like to apologize to my Irish, German, Australian, and New Zealand listeners. Now that I've confirmed, you know, that you exist, I'm so sorry. And it has been fun strolling around the world with you, digging into my statistics, but I really should go now before I look and see how many Russian listeners I have. This is one of those stories that I doubt will have much long-term impact, but the Arizona House of Representatives voted 31 to 29 this week to pass a bill requiring that Apple and Google allow app developers to use their own payment systems as a way to avoid their app store fees. And if you were wondering how many legislators Apple and Google paid off, <clears throat> I mean lobbied, that number is 29. And now that's not the end of the saga, not nearly. This is the United States legal system we're talking about here. The state Senate has to not be <clears throat> lobbied and pass the bill. And then the governor has to sign the bill. And then and only then can we start to figure out how to, you know, enforce this or wait for the lawsuits to be filed and nothing happens for another several years while this drags out and hooray for the American legal system. And even if this all goes smoothly, does that mean app developers in Arizona? Does that mean customers in Arizona? Is Epic Games going to open a branch office in Arizona and incorporate there? Will every other app developer do that? There's a lot of unanswered questions here, and it'll be interesting to watch. And in the meantime, Epic Games, if you need someone to move to Arizona and open an office for you and then not do anything, I'm just saying, I can podcast from Arizona. Call me. So, you remember how Huawei said, so, we can't sell phones in the U.S., we've still got China, we'll be fine. Well, actually, Oppo has now surpassed Huawei to become the number one smartphone seller in China. Oppo now accounts for 20% market share in China, which beats out Huawei, Apple, and Samsung, and that's pretty impressive. And we're looking at Oppo releasing the Find X3 Pro next week, which should do even more to boost its position. In short... Oppo is killing it. 
Meanwhile, Huawei has seen a fairly steady decline in market share since around August. Undoubtedly, Huawei's inclusion on the U.S. entity list is very responsible for this decline. We still have no word on if or when that will change, what with a new administration and all, so look for things to get worse for Huawei before they get better. Personally, while I believe that Huawei is still a shady-as-hell company, I have no problem with it selling phones in the U.S. and working with Google to get Google Play services and all that other stuff back. But yeah, Huawei can stay the hell away from our infrastructure. I have zero issues with that. Last week, we talked about Skunkworks and their new project, Speed Racer, and this week, we get an idea of what it might be. And I'm just going to let the sub-headline from Popular Mechanics spell it out. It's either a cruise missile-shaped drone or a drone-shaped cruise missile. Lockheed Martin released a promotional video this week that shows off a lot of the manufacturer's successes and pushes forward the idea of digital engineering called StarDrive. A defense editor at Aviation Week and Space Technology spotted the Speed Racer aircraft in the video and followed up with Lockheed, who confirmed that it was indeed the Speed Racer project, though they won't confirm what Speed Racer actually is. The aircraft is seen dropping from a C-12 Huron aircraft, suggesting that it's an aircraft launch vehicle. We just don't know whether it photographs things or blows up after that. We'll keep an eye out on the story, and if anything comes up, you'll be the first to know. HBO Max is one of the most expensive streaming services that you can get for $15 per month in the U.S. And by the way, I just finished The West Wing, and that show alone is worth the price of a mission. All the same, it's pricey, and Warner Media CEO Jason Killar suggested that a new tier of HBO Max may be coming at some point that would be less expensive or free, but also ad-supported, much like Hulu and CBS All Access. While speaking at Morgan Stanley's Technology, Media, and Telecom Virtual Conference, Kellar said, quote, It turns out that most people on this planet are not wealthy, which is a surprising revelation coming from a CEO. All the same, a new tier would indeed be welcome because HBO Max is good, but ad-supported, cheaper HBO Max would be pretty great, too. I'm not really sure I want my Batman movies interrupted by ads, but for shows like The West Wing or Big Bang Theory, that would be fine. This revelation comes on the heels of companies like Disney and Warner realizing that a traditional movie theater release schedule is going to be hard to get back to. With video rentals all but abolished, movie companies are looking at theaters and streaming as their only two distribution options. And during the pandemic, many people have gotten used to what Kalar calls the, quote, luxury of watching a movie at home. Personally, I agree, but I know that there are legions of folks out there who relish the theater experience, and I get it. The big screen, the booming sound, the teenagers in the back texting, and the sticky floors that are probably sticky with spilled soda, but you can't completely rule out other substances. Ugh. Yeah, no thanks. I watch my movies at home from now on. Verizon made headlines this week by telling people in support documents that if they want to extend their battery life... All they need to do is switch off 5G. But T-Mobile took that advice and said, hold my beer, suggesting in support documentation that users who want to extend battery life should switch from 5G down to 2G and just, holy crap, dude, that's pretty hardcore. 2G technology is capable of a maximum of 1 megabit per second and usually pulls down closer to 256 kilobits per second. Suddenly, I'm taken back to my high school days, downloading porn one line of pixels at a time, and yes, that's the second porn reference in the news section. 
there's not really much more to the story except for maybe phone manufacturers are panicking a little bit. I mean, I've had a number of 5G phones and I don't really think that the concern is all that warranted. My battery life has been just fine on every 5G phone that I've tested. In fact, some 5G phones I've used are basically two-day phones. So, no, you don't have to go back to downloading porn in the 90s to keep your phone going. You'll be fine. SpaceX had its third test launch of its Starship rocket and saw a certain measure of success in that the rocket ship took off, flew to an altitude of 10 kilometers, and then dropped back to Earth where it touched down gently on the launch pad. Then 10 minutes later it blew up, but hey, it was the first time it landed successfully, so let's give some credit, huh? Actually, this is remarkable progress considering how things have been going so far. SpaceX is cranking out a Starship rocket every few weeks and... This is the reason why. These tests are all data gathering missions, and you can bet that SpaceX engineers are gathering a crap ton of data, like how small pieces of a rocket ship that blew up can get, I guess. I'm, ju I'm just kidding. But these are expected pitfalls when trying to build something with a few thousand moving parts and an explosive engine. Ars Technica lays out the whole story about how these steps in the process show the progress and just what's on the line as NASA contemplates a few different vendors for a contract worth billions. As far as I know, none of the other prospects have even launched rockets yet, so is no rockets better than blowing up rockets? I'm not sure I can answer that question, but I think some progress is better than no progress. Maybe it's just me. And finally, this week saw the conclusion to WandaVision, and even though that was two days prior to when you hear this, I'm not going to spoil anything. What I will say is that I agree with one assessment that said that WandaVision started out as a cute and funny little TV show and ended up being another Marvel movie, which honestly is okay. I've linked to the spoiler-filled review in the show notes, so keep that in mind before you click. Overall, I enjoyed the series, and I'm curious to see how this plays out in the movies and other TV series that are to come. I definitely hope to see more out of the major players that were in the show, and Disney seems to have left the door open for a lot of them to come back, if not all of them, so we'll see. Meantime, if you haven't watched the final episode by now, I recommend you do so, because Twitter alone will be filled with spoilers by the time you're done listening to this. So have a seat, and check out the show. I will spoil one tiny little thing, and if you don't want to hear it, skip forward 30 seconds right now. Spoiler in 3, 2, 1. There are two end credit scenes, so be sure to check them both out. And with that, we now return to your regularly scheduled spoiler-free broadcast. Back in application API. Bugs, attachment, DevOps, backend, frameworks, backward, component, oriented, natural language, build software, blue text, text editor, book, version, off control, and web server. Welcome to Tech Yeah! This week on Tech Yeah, I want to talk about one of my favorite gadgets that I got for Christmas the GoCube. This is a Bluetooth-connected Rubik's Speed Cube that teaches you how to solve it. A Speed Cube is one where the magnets hold the pieces in place as opposed to just friction. The result is you can turn it very fast and be sure that it will always lock into the correct place. 
So the way this works is you download the app and you pair it up to your cube. The app then walks you through a complete tutorial on how to go about solving the cube. There are various levels that you can pass through as you learn various methods of solving, and yes, that means that there are many ways to actually solve a Rubik's Cube. The tutorials go at your pace with video demonstrations and animations that teach you the various algorithms you need to solve, and there's really only like four, which is mind-blowing when you think about it. By the way, an algorithm is a predetermined set of moves that you make to manipulate pieces on the cube, like turn the right side, then the top side, then the left side, then the top side again, and that, that would be one algorithm. And don't do that algorithm because as far as I can tell, it doesn't do anything except mess you up. Once you learn the algorithms you need, you can then enter the practice yard where you solve the cube mostly on your own, but if you mess up, the app will actually tell you what moves to make to get to the last place you were before you went off the rails. It's really neat, but I'm not sure that the app really tells you the most efficient way to get back there because I swear, I've made like one algorithm mistake and I've been sent off on a 40 move quest to get back to where I needed to be. Anyway, I'm sure the app knows best. By the way, if you've ever wondered what I am doing while doing QA listens and editing the podcast, ding, 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 it's the GoCube. The ultimate end here is that I was able to solve the cube kinda sorta on my own, a little nudge here and there, and actually, if I picked up a cube right now, I could get like 70% of it done on my own, completely unassisted. It's a really fun and in a weird way, empowering. Rubik's Cubes are one of those things that I thought would always be outside of my grasp, like writing code or understanding women, or other people in general for that matter, but it turns out that the GoCube has gotten me closer to that than I have ever been before, and that's exciting to me. I need to play with it a lot more before I can become a cube master, and I'll have the GoCube along to show me how it's done until I'm ready to do it on my own. As always, there's a link in the show notes and on benefitofadow.com, and if you pick one up, I'll get a little cut and won't cost you anything extra, and I thank you for that. But for now, let's get on with the show. Our next guest on the podcast is basically your go-to guy for anything 5G. He's been working with PC Mag for 14 years, and in the past few years, he's made it his mission to understand the intricacies of all the 5Gs. AT&T and Verizon went on a spending spree last week to get all the spectrums, and it was kind of a big deal, and it's not the last one. So I asked our guest if he would come on and chat with me about it. Sasha Segan, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me on. It's very exciting to have you on, and we, as we were talking about off-air, we've sat in the same rooms before, but we've never actually had a chance to uh, meet face-to-face, so it's good to meet you face-time-to-face-time, as it were. So, Yeah, absolutely, and uh, we were also talking about uh, how our interests go all the way back to uh, WebOS. I kind of wish there was video on this podcast so I could show off oh. this Pre-3 again. Boy, the WebOS nerdery that happened before we hit the air, it was amazing. So we were talking about veers and pre-threes and WebOS meetups and all that fun stuff. So, but... As much as I would love to dive into nostalgia, and if I have you back for the Beyond a Doubt series, we can definitely get into that. Um, But for today, we are going to focus our talk on 5Gs, despite the fact that I just aired an episode about 5G, because new things are happening, and and things are movers, movers and shakers are moving and shaking. So we just had an auction, and to say just had is a little bit disingenuous because it's actually been a process going on since like December, I believe, somewhere in that neighborhood. Yeah, it's Um, been going on for like the past three months. Yeah, yeah. But we just completed, 
I guess the first phase, and this is why you're here, because I only have a, 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 a tangential understanding of all this, but we just completed a phase of this auction where we found out that Verizon spent $45 billion with a B dollars on some Spectrum, AT&T followed up with $23 billion with a B dollars, and T-Mobile's like, no, I'm good. <laughs> so um, I was wondering if we could just start off by uh, getting like a high-level view of the Spectrum auction what it was, what happened, and what are the consequences of it? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, as a lot of people keep on saying, there's basically three kinds of 5G airwaves, low, middle, and high. And as we've been discovering over the past couple of years of working with 5G, low gets you a lot of range, but the performance is basically 4G. There's kind of, in the short term, there's nothing really to get excited about with performance. High gets you spectacular performance, and it only goes 800 feet from a panel. So it turns out that these mid-band airwaves are the sweet spot, and that's what a lot of the rest of the world has focused on in their early 5G rollouts. There's enough, uh, there's enough width in the mid-band to allow for performance that's significantly better than 4G, but it goes far enough that you only have to put a panel really once every half a mile or so, which is pretty decent, all told. So uh, the position that the U.S. was in was that we did not have enough mid-band available for 5G. Uh, T-Mobile had gotten a lot of it with the Sprint merger, but uh, AT&T and Verizon essentially had no dedicated mid-band available for 5G, and that put them at a great, great disadvantage. So the FCC finally got around to realizing that mid-band is absolutely critical for large numbers of people to have an actual 5G experience. And uh, after a lot of debate and a lot of back and forth, they convinced some satellite companies to move out of a chunk of mid-band spectrum that they had been using for the past 30, 40 years called the C-band. Okay. Um, Satellite companies had been using uh, 500 megahertz, which is a lot, of the C-band since the 1980s. But C-band dishes, which are those big old satellite dishes that you remember people getting TV on in the 1980s, those have been become... I had some friends that lived in the mountains that actually had um, satellites exactly like that. So you you couldn't stand in front of them because your brains would melt and stuff. So, yeah. Exactly. Those services have been becoming less and less popular over the past 20 years, especially with the expansion of the little small KA and KU band dishes like DirecTV and Dish use. So um, there's still some C-band satellite usage. It's mostly for uh, those kind of uh, network truck uplinks and downlinks. But it's a lot less used than it used to be. So um, between using it less and the uh, availability of new digital encodings... The satellite companies can pack their C-band usage into much less of the band than they previously needed to use, which opened up 280 megahertz of that 500 for use by 5G cellular carriers. Okay. So that is what ended up being on auction. That 280 megahertz of freed up X-satellite spectrum 
that uh, AT&T and Verizon were so desperate to get a hold of because they had a giant hole in the middle of their 5G network strategies. Yeah. So that went on auction in December, and there were essentially two phases to the auction. One in which uh, everybody uh, everybody bid and you know tried to figure out how much they were going to pay. And then the second one in which the actual spectrum chunks got assigned. And now that's important because the way C-band works, because it's still being used by these satellite companies, the satellite companies have different amounts of time to move out of the spectrum. So there's certain parts of the C-band in certain locations that are going to be available at the end of this year. But there's other parts of the C-band in other locations that are not going to be available for 5G until the end of 2023. Hmm. So the uh, 5G companies who got the early clearing spectrum are kind of at an advantage to the 5G companies that got the late clearing spectrum. And the early clearing spectrum was kind of more expensive than the late clearing spectrum. Ah, all right. All right. This is starting to come together a little bit. Okay. Okay. So what happened in the end is that um, the early clearing spectrum covers 46 of the top 50 uh, markets in the U.S. And when we say markets in this case, these are FCC definitions, and they typically include a city and a considerable amount of hinterland around it. Okay. Like, kind of like... Radio broadcast rights for a baseball team, that kind of a thing. Okay, exactly. Which is also which is also terrible, but that's a different conversation. So let's go. Let's keep going. Exactly. Like <laughs> the L.A. market in the FCC's parlance goes all the way to the Nevada border. Um, yeah. So yeah. So the early clearing spectrum is forty six of the top fifty markets, and it's one hundred megahertz in those uh, forty six markets, and that's at the end of twenty twenty one, and then at the end of twenty twenty three. The other 180 megahertz and all of the rest of the country opens up. Okay. All right. So what ended up happening is that in the first phase, Verizon and AT&T split the early clearing spectrum pretty much 60-40. So Verizon gets 60 megahertz of early clearing spectrum in the top 46 markets, uh, or 46 of the top markets at the end of this year. AT&T gets 40 megahertz. And then at the end of 2023... Verizon gets a whole lot more. They get like up to 160, 180 megahertz in a lot of places. AT&T gets up to 100 megahertz in a lot of places. And T-Mobile gets a little bit here and there. And uh, then there's a couple of tiny players who don't really matter as much. So now that AT&T and Verizon have this spectrum that they're not even going to be able to use until the end of the year, are they allowed to start building up their infrastructure now so that when that switch flips at the end of this year, will they just be able to basically push a button and suddenly everybody has all the 5Gs? Or do they have to wait until they actually have the rights to that spectrum before they can actually start to build out that infrastructure? I mean, there are certain things they can do now because um, they they can't actually turn on the transmitters. There's a level of testing they can't do because the uh, satellite companies still have, you know, permission to use the spectrum in certain areas. But they they can plan their real estate strategies. They can buy equipment. They can decide where the equipment is going to go. They can, you know, plan installation calendars. They could even, you know, they can even mount panels on poles. Um, There is... 
still going to need to be a uh, in the field testing period. Okay. Yeah. That um, makes sense. Yeah, but but also I wouldn't be surprised if uh, AT and T and Verizon start quietly negotiating with the satellite companies, kicking them some money here and there to make things a little more flexible for them. You know, to, let them run a test or two at two a.m. or something like that. So or to say you know in or to say you know Intel Sat, you don't really have any operations that we've noticed going in Mobile, Alabama right now. And yeah. IntelSat says, eh, you can do tests in Mobile, Alabama, if you give us five million bucks. You know, that kind gotcha. of thing goes around all the time. So, out of curiosity, what ha- opened the floodgates to all this extra spectrum that's suddenly becoming available? Is it just the administrative competence, or is it was there something else that happened? Is it just we decided to have the conversation, or wh- where did that come from? I mean, the administrative competence is some of it, but it's also a realization that mid-band was critical and i think the failure of millimeter waves so far as a um as a as a coverage uh tactic um plays a big part of this because uh, earlier the u.s 5g strategy was very much focused on this high band millimeter wave spectrum and uh, Verizon made some promises and Qualcomm made some promises about millimeter wave being able to go 3,000 feet from a panel, being able to go through walls, being able to cover entire suburbs. Uh, there, there was a lot of this being talked about, in, in especially in 2018. Okay, and I was about to say, when were these promises being made? Because that has not been my experience at all. It's a, it was, I mean, like, where did that, where did that even come from? Because that's clearly not the case. <laughs> so, yeah. Well, it came from demos being shown in 2018, which were obviously shown in ideal circumstances. Right. And um, uh, you, you can go back on Verizon's website and see some of the videos from back then, some of the tests they were doing in Houston, uh, which really made it look like Millimeter Wave was more viable as a... Uh, city coverage layer than it ended up being Hmm. and verizon took a lot of time and spent a lot of money and has not covered very much of each city that it's in and has not solved the uh wall penetration problem and the industry as a whole came around to the realization that uh millimeter wave as a as a primary uh, vector of 5G just isn't going to cut it. We need this midband, and that made it much more urgent, especially last year. Enjoying this interview? Did you know that there are over 10 more minutes of time where we talked that ended up on the bonus version? The full interview is available to all of my patrons right now over at patreon.com slash benefit of the doubt. For as little as $2 per month, you can get in on the ground floor of this podcast and help support the show. Plus, you'll get additional benefits like access to my Discord, early podcasts, bonus live shows, and so much more. Just go to patreon.com slash benefit of the doubt. That's patreon.com 
slash benefit of the doubt. And if you don't want to be a patron, that's okay too. Full interviews become available at the beginning of each new month. So for example, trimmed interviews in January will have the full versions on February 1st. I don't want you to miss out. Just head over to patreon.com slash benefit of the doubt and you can listen to the full interviews even if you don't subscribe because I still want you to love the show. There are more great options for helping me out at benefitofadoubt.com slash support. That's benefitofthedoubt.com slash support. You'll get a list of all my affiliations and monetization options all wrapped up in a neat little package at benefitofadoubt.com slash support. I hope you visit. I hope you take in some full interviews. And as always, I thank you for listening. Gotcha. Okay. All right. I mean, that just, I, I, I'm having trouble wrapping my head around the fact that anybody thought that millimeter wave was going to be viable, but okay. So, um, just kind of circling back a little bit, what did we, uh, we talked about it a little bit, like the, the larger uh, satellite. I'm just wondering if there's anything else, what did we have to give up in order to make this spectrum available? Like what kind of devices, are no longer going to be able to be, maybe that's not even the right way to ask the question, but like what was using the C-band spectrum up until we decided to auction it off? We talked about the radar of the satellite dishes, but was there anything else that uh, I, I saw there was something about the Navy uh, that, that uh, had to be bought out. Was, was there like some radar tech or something? Yeah. That yeah. There's some Navy radar poking around in there. That's, that's a whole problem with all of those three to four gigahertz slices. It's a problem in 3.45. It's a problem in CBRS, which is in between them. Uh, it's a problem here. Basically they all have to work around Navy radar. Um, but I would like to note they work around Navy radar. Navy radar does <laughs> not work around them. <laughs> Fair, right, of course. So, well, we have the largest military in the world. So, yeah, we we're, nobody's going to push us around. Yeah, but the big thing, the big thing uh, that's being given up with C-band is that it was and is used heavily for uh, video backhaul. Um, how TV channels and TV broadcasters get video from place to place. Um, how you get your um, how you get your CNN guy on the street to the video in the studio, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And okay. uh, so, some of that is being handled by the repacking into the higher bands. Okay. Some of that is being handled by other forms of transport, which didn't exist um, years and years ago when C-band was first used for this. Things like, for instance, 5G. Right. Okay. Interesting. And you know what's interesting is like when you talk about those news vans that are doing remotes and like broadcasting, you know, their their signal back to the news station. That's exactly what we need. Like we we need those 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 waves so that I mean, you know, for, so our Instagram cats can upload faster. But I mean, like that's exactly what they're talking about with like five G is like streaming video like super fast. So, I mean, it was it's it seems like one of those problems that was like staring us in the face for years and years and years before we finally realized. Hey, can we have some of that? <laughs> yeah, and there's a, there's a there, there's an interesting little there's an interesting little twist in the five G aspect of this that I remember talking about with Verizon around the Super Bowl, um, which is that okay, so these broadcasters, one difference between these broadcasters and your Instagram cats is that the broadcasters demand a very very high guaranteed quality of service. And they're used mm, yeah. to a very, very high guaranteed quality of service where their videos don't buffer or glitch out. And Makes sense. 
That is not a feature available on 5G networks right now, but it's a feature about to become available on 5G networks with something called network slicing, which is available in what's known as 5G release 16, which is rolling out this year and next year. So Mm. we're just so this uh, considering that the C band is freeing up at the end of this year and network slicing kind of starts to become available at the end of this year. These things kind of begin to converge where you start to have a 5G application, which is suitable for these professional video uses, just as the professional video people can no longer use C band. So that those two things are kind of going together. Huh. This is a fascinating conversation. I'm so glad. I'm so glad we're be able, we're able to talk about this. So uh, there's a couple of things that I wanted to touch on based on what we were talking about earlier. Um, you talked about the build out for this C band network, um, where you're going to have to have a box every half mile or so, give or take, um, in order to get adequate coverage. I was just kind of wondering, how does that density of 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 antennas how does that compare to what we have now with 4g is it because i know one of the things about the 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 sub six network that t-mobile built is it was someone told me it was like a one-to-one thing where they take out a 4g node put in a 5g node and you basically get the same coverage is that kind of what we're going to see from c-band or is it narrower or how does that compare well that's yeah the sub six network that t-mobile has is you were mentioning it earlier, it is exactly the Sprint WiMAX network. Right, right. Which, okay, we're going to talk about this. Um, in fact, you know what? Let's just throw down right now. Zome. The reason, the reason I wanted to talk to you about this was because back when Sprint launched their 5G network in Chicago, I was there with a, with, um, with a different outlet, and I heard... I don't even remember who said it. I mean, I, it might have been, been in a conversation I overheard from somebody. But I heard somebody say that the reason Sprint built out its WiMAX network, and maybe you can finally confirm this because I have been searching for this for years. The reason why Sprint built out its WiMAX network wasn't necessarily because Sprint knew that WiMAX was going to be the next big thing, but more because they had the spectrum and they built this WiMAX network in order to retain its possession of the spectrum that T-Mobile ultimately ended up buying. I, I have heard that too. I have not tracked down the actual documentation on the build-out requirements which would prove that to be true or untrue but i have heard that and build-out requirements are real right so it is entirely it's entirely possible um sprint really did jump the gun on 4g um (laughs) and so the idea that they jumped that gun because they had spectrum they needed to use and so they needed to use the they decided to use the technology which was available at the time certainly does make sense okay so uh i just have i i think we've talked about as long as i said we were going to talk so i want to go ahead and start wrapping things up here um since we're talking about the uh, spectrum auction that's coming up in october you said that the two comp- the two networks would basically be largely incompatible. It'd be easier to have one or the other. What's the primary difference between those two? Like, what makes them? Inco- I don't know if incompatible is the right word, but what would make them? What would make it easier to have one or the other? They're not adjacent, 
And so okay. um, there's a the, the block of CBRS spectrum is in between them. So um, you can't just use you can't just use 3.45 to 3.55 to make your uh, C band channels bigger. Okay. And so you have to treat it as separated channels, which means you start using channel aggregation, which is something that you absolutely can do, and like every you know 4G absolutely does but it's less convenient than just having adjacent channels that you can make really large 5g getting the real performance out of 5g is all about getting those single large channels as opposed to putting a lot of smaller ones together okay so that makes sense um so you really want to have you know you want to have 80 megahertz of c-band or 80 megahertz of 3.45 you don't want to have 40 of each okay so it's kind of like uh to to put a really bad metaphor on it it's like having a bunch of little holes in the cap of a bottle of a bottle of water instead of just taking the cap off basically yeah 5g is all about taking that cap off and um that's what we that's what for instance the carriers haven't been able to do with low band low band is just a lot of little holes um, and getting those big channels, taking that cap off that bottle is how we get to the next stage of wireless evolution. Gotcha. That's such a, such a fascinating conversation. All right. So one last question. Once we have all this 5G spectrum and then once we have all this 5G availability, what's going to happen to the spectrum that's allotted for 4G? Is that just going to stick around or is can that be repurposed into 5G? Like wh- where's the where's the 4G stuff going after all this is uh, all this is said and done? So 4G is definitely sticking around as a technology for at least 10 years. Uh, okay. Aggregation and combination with 4G is a core part of the 5G spec. 4G is not going away until we are well into 6G. So there's going to be some 4G for the foreseeable future. But uh, yeah, just as as a lot of the 3G spectrum got turned over into 4G, we're going to see some of the 4G spectrum get turned over into 5G as 5G becomes more popular and 4G becomes less popular. And okay. there's a technology um, that's under a lot of scrutiny right now called dynamic spectrum sharing, which uh, basically lets carriers put kind of movable jersey barriers in their 4G lanes to slowly okay. move more and more over it to 5G as necessary. I've never heard the term jersey barriers before, and I can only imagine what that means. But, <laughs> but it, sounds, it sounds fun. <laughs> Is that like a New York thing? I guess so. Maybe it's a New Jersey thing. It's those. It's, it might be. It's those. It's those uh, big plastic lane dividers on the highway that they use for temporary construction. Oh sure, okay. Yeah, those yeah. are Jersey barriers. Yeah, okay. Where they, where they, uh, you know, sometimes they're cutting off two lanes. Sometimes they're only cutting off one lane if they only need the one lane. Yeah. That's fun. Okay. All right. Cool. Well, uh, <laughs> on that note, we can go ahead and start to wrap things up. So, um, Sasha, thank you so much for coming on. And I want to go ahead and roll out the red carpet for you and let you let everybody know where they can find you on the socials and on the internets and on you know and, and pimp your stuff, basically. Go yeah, absolutely. It. So um, I write a lot about 5G and mobile for PCMag.com. If you go to PCMag.com slash 5G, 
you'll get to uh, the Race to 5G page, which has a lot of my 5G content on it. I also run a weekly newsletter called Race to 5G, which is available on PCMag.com. And I really encourage you to sign up for it. It generally has a weekly column and then some other really good 5G stuff I found around the web or around our site over the past week. So the uh, Race to 5G newsletter is something that I'm really pushing right now. And if you want to interact with me, Twitter is the best way. I'm Sasha Segan on Twitter, and uh, I am pretty much constantly on that site. So uh, that's a great way to get in touch. Yeah, and autocorrect really hates the way you spell your first name. It's S-A-S-C-H-A, um, and, and then the last name is S-E-G-A-N. So I can't tell you how like how much I was fighting against autocorrect to just write out my intro. <laughs> yeah, but you, you, must, you must experience that all the time with D-O-W-D, right? Oh, don't even get me started. Nobody knows how to pronounce my last name either. It's, it's, wonder, it's, it's, it's amazing. It's four letters, and nobody gets it right, so... All right. Well, um, thank you again for coming on. And I really appreciate you taking the time to learn us all about the 5Gs and the Spectrum auctions. And uh, I hope to have you back again sometimes and hopefully sometime soon. Thanks a lot. Yeah. And I'll uh, definitely would love to talk to you again about this or, you know, what smartphones we were using in 2009. Yes. And for me, that's about the limit. So excellent. Thank you so much. Thank you. So that's going to do it for this podcast. I'd like to thank Sasha Segan for coming onto the show and chatting about this 5G bidding war that we're seeing, and for recognizing that my off-camera logo is a Palm Veer. WebOS nerds forever, am I right? Speaking of WebOS nerds, I'd like to thank co-producer Cliff for all of his work behind the scenes, but most of all, and as always, I'd like to thank you for listening and for giving me the benefit of the doubt.